So the last two weeks we've been going through the Ten Commandments. We saw that summarized, the first part of the Ten Commandments said uh, basically love God, right? And then we saw the second part of the commandments said to love others. And, and that can be summarized as Jesus and others had said, that the whole of the law can be summarized in those two commandments. And, uh, and so we saw last week, one of the really hard things is we can love others by loving others as we love ourselves, right? And that's a wonderful, beautiful statement. So many people you share that with and they go, yeah, that's great. Um, but deep, deep dark down in our souls, many of us who've been Christians for a while, there's a question that can come up that we don't want to answer. Uh, and, and we don't even want to ask the question because we know it's wrong and it's kind of selfish. But we say, okay, love my neighbors as myself. Why? Right? Oh, oh well, it's, it's better for you know, society and God wants you to do it and it's a commandment. Okay, I got that. That's, that, that's the good and correct answer. But but what's in it for me, <laughs> right? Because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, your life is probably going to be more difficult. It's going to be harder. You're going to have a more difficult time in life. And sometimes it makes your life just miserable. Loving others as you love yourself. Putting others' needs, wants, and desires before your own needs, wants, and desires. So what's in it for me? What happens when believers choose to love others as we love ourselves. What's in it for me? So we saw the last part of the, this, I should say, the second part of the Ten Commandments was really focusing on our relationship with other people. And now we come to a section that is often called the Book of the Covenant. And I thought about breaking this up into smaller pieces. And I'm glad that I didn't, because I have to tell you, I was usually I've got a good idea of what the text says and where I'm going by Tuesday. Um, it was like Thursday afternoon, where I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to say on Sunday. I, like, I really, it was, that, it was that rough. Until, praise God, I think the Holy Spirit showed me in His Word, oh, this is why this is, and this is why we have to look at all this here. So we're going to summarize a lot of it as we go through it, um, but I think you're, you're going to understand and see what God was doing. Now you have to remember too that all of what we're seeing, this was written to Israel thousands of years ago. They had a totally different context. Uh, and as we read it today, some of it might seem like, ooh, that's harsh, or oh, we can't do that today. Obviously, this was, God gave Israel this in a certain time and place, and he was setting them on a trajectory for future time and place. So if you're reading this on your own and you're like, ooh, that sounds harsh, should we follow that? Are we not following the Bible if you don't follow that? No, <laughs> because if you look at later in the Old Testament and the New Testament, these, uh, these concepts, these principles that are laid down uh, are, are, have a more fulfilled understanding of how we're to live in relationship with God and others. So let's jump in here. Uh, in verse 20, it says, Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was on Mount Sinai. Verse 22, Then the Lord told Moses, This is what are you, you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your flocks and herds, and I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Do not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. Okay, so 
Again, he reiterates, I'm God and don't worship other gods. And don't worship me the way you worship other gods, right? So other people, well, they'll make idols of their gods. I don't want an idol and you're not going to bow down to this idol for me. Okay, uh, pretty simple. He's reiterating this. But then he goes, uh, and when you worship me, as you guys are wandering through the desert, right, before the tabernacle is built, uh, or if you're in a situation where you're not in the tabernacle or around the tabernacle or later the temple, uh, you can build an altar for me, but don't have steps and don't, don't cut out nice stones and build this cool altar. Get a bunch of rocks, pile them up, put the wood for your sacrifice on there and worship me that way, simply. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I find this really encouraging because I think the principle we can draw from here is he's saying worship only God and you can worship him simply. Now, me personally, I love architecture. I love going into like St. Patrick's Cathedral and looking around. And I mean, you just look at that and you're in awe of, oh, look at the wonder. I, mean, I remember back in upstate New York, there was this place called uh, Mount St. Alphonsus uh, that was first Catholic and now it's uh, Bruderhofen. And I, I got to do a presentation in their chapel, and it was one of the worst presentations I've ever done because I was so distracted by the beauty of this building. It's incredible. Ah, wow. I don't know if you've ever been in a beautiful building before, and you've sensed the awe of, of God that he can inspire people to do something like this, but I felt that. But you know what? We don't need that. In the New Testament, they didn't meet in ornate churches. They met in people's houses. I mean, it's not wrong, especially if you've seen the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, it's not wrong if you have those ornate options, but, but you can worship God simply. I mean, I love our building, but, but it's not going to win any architecture awards anytime soon. <laughs> All the other churches are going to have to be gone before we are like, all right, you know, it's, it's not a barn. Oh, wait, look what they did in that barn. That's cool. Never mind, guys. Right? Like, it's, it's functional. And that's okay. We can meet God here. We can meet God together. We can worship God simply. And it doesn't even have to be in the church building. You can worship God in your home. You can worship God in your car. And it doesn't matter if it's a really nice car or it's a prayer car that you're praying gets there and back every single time you drive it. And so he says this is, uh, this is how we can, uh, we can worship Him. What happens when we love our neighbor as ourselves? So we've established who God is. Now we move into how we have relationships with other people. Uh, chapter 21, verse 2. It says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then, in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, he is to leave with his wife, and, leave with, and his, his wife is to leave with him. Okay, so as you go through this, you can read through it and say, wow, there's some different things. But hold on, time out. Slaves? Like, is it biblical to have slaves? You have to understand the context of which this was written, right? When we hear slaves, we think American chattel slavery. You think Roman slavery. You think Egyptian slavery, where you own a person. There is a person, and they are no longer a person. They are your property. You own them. They are an object. And you could tell them what to do and how to do it. And, and, and you have total control. They have absolutely zero ability or rights to say yes or no. That's the context God has given them this, this word. And the word slave, that is the correct term to use here, but if you read it, it says like they're only with you for six years. And in the seventh, you have to release them. This is more of indentured servanthood. Which if you recall, 
uh, back then this time? I mean, you could starve at a moment's notice, your crop fails, your animals die, and you've starved within a few weeks. God was giving them this provision to say, okay, look, you know, I know that you guys live in a harsh society and that there's sometimes you're like, we don't have anything. We need to be employed by someone else, but they didn't have that concept of employees and everything. Okay, so you can go and serve another family for six years. And as it goes on, it gives rights. You're not allowed to do whatever you want to them. These are more employees than they are slaves from Egypt or slaves as we understand them in the Roman Empire or slaves as we understand them from American history. This concept here, God is saying in this section, look, people are people. People are not objects. Now we see that today. I mean, first of all, you understand that uh, um, slavery is now more prevalent in the world than at any other time in human history. That's incredible. Right? There's, there's a lot of institutions that work against, like the International Justice uh, Institute that works against slavery that's happening right now which is more prevalent in the world than it's ever been at any time um, but in our everyday lives for us 21st century we see this idea where people don't look at other people as slaves uh, and they wouldn't say slaves however we do see points where people are looking at other people as objects and not persons that was what was so radical about this is god was saying these are people they are never your property these are people they are never your objects they're always persons, always persons, always persons. But we can, in our 21st century life, uh, get into that, that sense, especially maybe you have a large business or a large corporation. It's easy to start looking at the numbers and thinking that the employees are just objects, that they're just numbers, and that you can move those things around. No, these are people. They're not objects. They're not cogs in the machine. They're people. And so if you have a business that you run, you have to remember, as you make those decisions, those financial decisions, you are dealing with persons. I know some of you have experienced where you have been fired or let go. And the way they fire you, the way they let you go, it is just like you are a number and you are gone. That's wrong. It's wrong. You're more than an employee. You are a person and God is saying, you have to treat them like this. So if you have a place of authority, treat your people like people. If you're an employee and you work at a corporation that treats people like objects, I think we have a duty in the name of Jesus to, as effectively as possible, say, hey, we have to remember, guys, that these are people. Maybe we have to let them go. Maybe we have to make cuts. But these are people. Okay, so we pe uh, treat people like people, not objects. What's in it for me? Oh, one, one other thing. The other, uh, it's horrifying. How, how do we also in 21st century America treat people like objects? Talking about sexual slavery, uh, pornography. Um, th there is study after study after study to show that regular use of pornography rewires our brains so we no longer see people as people, we see people as objects. You can hook up a person's brain and you could show them a picture of a person and the part of the brain that lights up and says a person starts fading away and the part of the brain that says objects starts lighting up. It is a public health crisis. And uh, the multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry um, and when we participate in pornography, 
yes, it does start forming these, these maps in our brains to say that people are objects and not people, and not just on the computer, not just on your smartphone, but when you go into real life, you start seeing people as objects. But also when we partake in and participate with pornography, you realize you are also engaging in human trafficking and you are supporting um, sla human slavery in 21st century America. So we treat people like people, not objects. Okay, what happens when we love others as we love themselves? As we love ourselves, what, what do we do? What do I get out of it, right? What's in it for me? We come to the next section, verse 12. It's talking about personal injury. Whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be, must be put to death. But if he, did, if he did not intend any harm, and yet God allowed it to happen, I will appoint a place for you where you may flee. If a person schemes and willfully acts against his neighbor to murder him, you must take him from my altar and be put to death. Okay, so there's, uh, there's this good delineation between murder and manslaughter, right? Like this was accidental, this was on purpose. And, um, and by the way, so you have the, the death penalty put here, and some of you are like, man, I don't know about that, that's hard, we'll talk about that in a second. But, um, but you have to realize, they did not have jails or prisons like, like we did right now. They, they didn't have options, there was no options to restrain evil. This was the only way to restrain evil. Verse 22, when men get in fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you may give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, bruise for bruise, and wound for wound. Uh, so we see throughout this whole section, he gives us lots of other, uh, like if your animals injure you, you know, someone else's animal injures them, like what you're supposed to do. Uh, it's this whole understanding that ultimately life is important and we must treat life as sacred from con conception all the way to natural death. I mean, that's what we see in this section. We have to treat life that it, like it matters from conception to natural death. This is the hard part because there's going to be people that are frustrated with everything that I say in the next section. Where do we see this today? All right, on the one hand, obviously, because we just read the section about what happens if a child is damaged in utero, if a preborn child is, is hurt. Um, we understand from this text, from the birth narratives of Christ, when the Holy Spirit overcame Mary, it says that uh, Jesus was, was within Mary's womb. It didn't say, you know, a zygote eventually would develop into the person Jesus, like the second per person of the Trinity incarnated in Mary for nine months. Um, so as Christians, we believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that life begins, human life begins at the point of conception. And so we encourage men and women if there is a baby, let we continue to have that baby and, uh, and we'll walk alongside you. We need to be pro-life in that sense, right? And we need to say, look, you know, abortion, that, that ends a human life. And we absolutely need to, to walk alongside people. And look, I know, there's the, the argument like, well, you know, Christians, all they care about is, is the life when it's in the womb. They don't care about it when it's out. And that's not true. I mean... Look at all the foster families who foster children. Um, look at, uh, look, well, look at what happened, what's happening in Texas right now. You can't get an abortion in Texas. And you have all these pregnancy support centers 
right there. And you'd think, oh, it's illegal. They shut down, right? No, they've added more staff. They're supporting women more. They're helping out with more pregnant women, right? Because we do think life is sacred from birth to, or from conception, excuse me, to natural death. All right, so we have to respect life at all points. Um, but where does this get hard? I mean, look at our, look at what just happened in Texas with the school shootings. I remember several school shootings ago, I saw a political pundit who claims to be a Christian, and so I'll take them on that. And they were talking about all of this, and they and basically said, oh, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. We can't do anything. We can't change anything. This is just what we're going to have to deal with. This is the price of freedom. Back up. School shootings are the price of freedom. What? If that's what freedom is, don't sign me up, please. Absolutely not. Like if we're going to be pro-life at conception, let's be pro-life and say, hey, church, we, we've got to do something. right? Now we understand that the government, their job, their biblical job is to restrain evil. Okay, So they've got to roll the play in this. And I know it's complex. I know it's hard. I know it's rights. I know everything else. But man, we've got, we've got to have conversations instead of talking over each other and yelling at each other and, and screaming. right? We absolutely have to. The church has to be at the forefront of that. Uh, not only that, but the church has to say, hey, look, most of these people doing this are young men between 18 and 25. Hey, if you know a young person within that age bracket, like it's our job as a church, as a Christian, to reach out to those people and talk with them and check in with them and see what they need and write letters and, and walk alongside them while their brains aren't working correctly, especially if you know someone troubled. Walk alongside people in those, in those age brackets. If you know them, reach out, reach out regularly. We absolutely have to. Um, oh, one other place to step on toes, sorry. We want to be pro-life, absolutely. Look at what happened in the pandemic. Look at what happened in the pandemic. Do you know how many Christian leaders I saw say things like, hey, look, you know, it's fine. Let's not worry about anything. Let's just live our lives. I mean, at one point, there was, like, there was a 9-11 happening every day. Over 3,000 people dying every day. And I know numbers and everything, but if you look at the raw numbers, more people have died in the last two years than ever before in America. So something's killing everyone, right? And I've heard Christian after Christian after Christian say, well, look, as long as you're young and healthy, you're fine. It's only affecting those who are old or who have an underlying health condition. I heard that so many times from so many Christians in this community, from so many Christians out there, from Christian leaders. How is that pro-life? Hey, who cares? It's just the old and the infirmed who are dying. No, we care about all life. And again, we can argue, we can discuss, we can say, hey, we should take these mitigating factors, we should take these mitigating factors, but we should never be in a place where we say, eh, you know, it's just old sick people who cares about them, which is essentially what that was saying. No, he says uh, throughout Scripture here, the idea is human life from conception to death matters. Okay, so what's in it for me? Why do I care? Why do I care if my neighbor dies? Why do I care if I look out for them? Verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 22, let's look at verse 7. We see 
There's also a respect for personal property. When a man gives his neighbors valuables or goods to keep, but they are stolen from that person's house, the thief, if caught, must repay double. If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house must present himself to the judges to determine whether or not he has taken his neighbor's property. In any case of wrongdoing involving an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or anything else lost, and someone claims, that's mine, the case must be brought between two parties and come before the judges. The one that judges condemns, the one the judge condemns must repay double to his neighbor. Whoa. I mean, if you read through this section, this is important, right? Because there's a lot of people and a lot of voices out there that are like saying, hey man, we shouldn't have personal property. We just share everything that we have. And you know what the reality is? Is like, no. Like the Bible really early on establishes personal property. Personal property matters. And we need to respect other people's personal property and our own personal property. It's not a wrong thing to say, hey, I have worked hard and I have this property now. So we need to respect that, and that's a reality. And that's how one way we love our neighbors as ourselves. But what's in it for me? Verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and he sleeps with her, he must certainly pay the bridal price for her to be his wife. Right? So like, you know, so two young lovers, they get together, right? And then she ends up pregnant and family finds out and they're like, hey, you know, you guys are supposed to be married. And they're saying, yeah, they've got to get married. But if her father, verse 17, absolutely refuses to give him to her, he's like, yeah, no good will ever come of this marriage. He must pay an amount in silver equal to the bridal price for virgins. Okay, so again, the bridal price, you know, you're not buying and selling people here. This is the woman's way to hold on to finances uh, in case something falls apart in her husband's life so that she's not destitute wet when he dies or if the marriage falls apart, okay? Um, that's, that's what that price is referring to. So, okay, what do we get from this? I, I, think, I think the understanding we can get from this is that marriage should involve the whole family. It, it really should. I mean, I, I get it. If, you're if your family's messed up and everything, it can't. But, but marriage should involve the family, right? Check in with mom and dad. Is this a good person? Check in with your church family. Is this a good person? I think the other idea that we can get from this is that sex actually affects everybody. I know we treat it like it doesn't. Like, hey, man, what I do in the privacy of my own house doesn't matter, right? It doesn't affect you in any way. Oh, but it does. It absolutely does. I mean, look at the foster care system. Like, look at all those kids that are stuck in the foster care system. What you do in, your, in the privacy of your own home actually does affect people out there. Not only that, go to the CDC's website. Uh, almost every year, except for there was one year where there was a blip down because of the pandemic, now we're way up. Every year, the CDC has numbers about sexually transmitted diseases or sexually transmitted infections. Every year, they update those numbers. And every year, they say, man, this is a pandemic. Like, this is an epidemic. It's worse than we've ever seen it before. Right? It's just, and it keeps getting worse and worse, but no one ever reports on it because that would go against the cultural message of, hey, you know, sex is fine as long as you have consent and you can do whatever and whatever you want. Right? Like, but but that's, that goes against the biblical standard of God created sex to be a wonderful and beautiful thing to be appreciated and enjoyed between a husband and a wife in marriage, in marriage alone. And outside of that, oh my goodness, that epidemic. Just go to cdc.gov. You see the numbers fly up. All right, that's a hard one. Honor sex, honor marriage. Keep marriage between a man and a woman. That's really hard. And that's really hard to say out loud because there are people who have a hard time with that. So what's in it for me? Then we have this weird section. 
which I think these are all interconnected. Verse 18 of chapter 22. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever has sexual intercourse with an animal must be put to death, and whoever sacrifices to any god except Yahweh alone is to be set apart for destruction. You could take all three of those as like separate. I think those are building on each other. And you have to remember the context was in the ancient world, they're over here, and they're worshiping these, these false gods, often demons masquerading as gods. And they're, 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 their worship usually involved the death of individuals, like a sorceress. It's not like someone who like read a book and they're like, oh, killer, that's this, this book. No, it's probably someone who is sacrificing individuals to gain power. Don't worship any other God other than the Lord your God and, and take them away if they're not. And they're, they're, they're called for destruction. Why? Well, because they're sacrificing people's babies in the name of Baal and Ashtaroth and, and Dagon and all these other gods. This is absolutely wicked. Now, we don't see much of that today. But what we do see is people try to find spiritual, supernatural power in anything other than Jesus, right? We absolutely do. And I think he's telling us here, look, if you try to find supernatural power in anything but Jesus, like you try to go to angels, hey, angels are good, right? Yeah, but we're not supposed to go out and seek them. If they come to us with a message, cool, I'm going to be like, I'm going to need to see a receipt for your boss. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> I'm just going to keep asking to see the manager until the big man himself shows up is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Satan masquerades as an angel of light. No, we, we go to Jesus and Jesus alone. He is our advocate. He is the one that we go to. People try all sorts of things. Crystals, horoscopes, um, angels, maybe demons pretending to be angels. Okay. So this is one way we love others because we don't lead them astray. What's in it for me? What is in it for me? Uh, next, we see protect the vulnerable. Verse 21 through 27. Let's read that. You must not exploit the resident alien or oppress him. So outsiders, in your midst, since you are resident aliens in the land of Egypt, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Wow. Right, So he's like, hey, don't mistreat the, the widow and the fatherless because if you do, I will take you out and then you, your children will be in the same position that you didn't have regard for those other people. Verse 25, if you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him and must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. Okay, ultimately protect the vulnerable. Who are the most vulnerable in our society today? Who are the most vulnerable people in our society? Elderly. Who else? Children. Who else? Disabled. Yep. The poor. Yeah. That hasn't changed. Single moms. Right? Oh my goodness. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, just so many. There's so many. Um, the foreigners, right? If someone doesn't speak our language and they're here, oh my goodness, it's hard. And he said, you have to protect the vulnerable. You have to. You absolutely have to. And look, it, this is what we understand through the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is never a human being that you have ever met that isn't made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Everyone was made in the image of God. And if you see someone vulnerable, it is up to us to take care of them. 
And we can't be like the rest of the world that, that puts people in all these camps and they're like, well, I'm going to help this person. I'm not going to help that person out. These are my people. I don't know who that is. It's like, no, as Christians, as life givers in the name of Jesus, you want to love your neighbor, you take care of the vulnerable and you certainly don't exploit them. You certainly don't exploit them. Verse 28 says, you must not blaspheme God or curse a leader among you. Uh, you probably have a footnote there. Uh, the word really says judge. I think what he's getting at is don't blaspheme God by blaspheming the judges that are working among you by the leaders or curse leader among you. Uh, why? Because as we see in chapter 23, don't work against justice. Verse 1 of chapter 23, you must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. You must not follow crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit and go along with the crowd to pervert justice. Man, like this was written yesterday, wasn't it? Like, this doesn't seem like it was written thousands of years ago. This was written yesterday. Verse 5, this one, oh man, this one's rough. And only the, the most technical of you can skate by with this one. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load, and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help it. <laughs> you're like, whew, I've never seen that before. <laughs> right? Basically, you see your enemy... Someone, your enemy's having a hard time. Something of theirs is like burning to the ground. You're like, yeah, I'm not going to call the fire department on that. Nope, right? This, this one's hard. It's like, man, isn't this, God, aren't you giving them their comeuppance? No, I have to help? Uh, okay. Basically, he's saying, look, don't work against justice. You have to be people of justice. Don't use deception for self-gain. Which, by the way, that's what we talked about right at the beginning of the service when I read that statement about the SBC abuse and some of our highest uh, leaders for the last 20 years. This is exactly what they're doing. They're thwarting justice. They lied in order to protect their own power, their own glory, their own name, their own reputation, whatever. It doesn't matter. You thwarted justice. And God says, I will fight against you. Which is why we made a public call to repentance. He disciplines until we repent, guys. So if you have places where you have uh, lied or misrepresented, repent and make amends. Okay, but what's in it for me? Okay, you love your neighbor by not, uh, by not thwarting justice, even if they ask you to, right? Like, hey man, we're buddies. Can you just lie about this? No, I'm not going to. Ah, that's hard to do, isn't it? But you love them by not lying for them because that never helps anything. What's in it for me? Why do all of this? Okay, well, this is the answer. This is what it comes to. And I'm glad we got through the entire book of the covenant this morning. Because look at what he says. He says in uh, verse 10 of chapter 23, sow your land for six years and gather its produce. But during the seventh year, you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor among your people may eat from it and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Now what's really tragic about this is they never followed the Sabbath year. Like, there's no record of them ever following the Sabbath year. And can you imagine that? Like, you work for six years and then you get a whole year off. Man, wouldn't that be amazing? I wish Israel did that so they gave us a roadmap and we'd be like, me, I'm signed up there. I mean, maybe we'd have to stagger the years. I don't know, but like, oh, please. That, wouldn't that be so cool? You get a full year off for every six years you work? <sighs> That'd be great. <laughs> um... But they never followed that. 
But they did follow this in verse 12. Do your work for six days, but rest on the seventh day so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female servants as well as the resident alien may be refreshed. Cool. Right? This goes back to what Jesus said. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're, we're, we're not supposed to have rest in the Lord just because we're supposed to have rest in the Lord. It's for us. It's for us. And here's where it connects. Verse 14 says, Celebrate a festival in my honor three times a year. Observe the festival of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You are to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib because you came out of Egypt in the month. No one is to appear to be empty-handed. And then he gives the rest of the festivals that they are supposed to observe, these, these festivals. And here, here's the weird thing. Like, I'm reading this going like, I have no clue how to preach any of this stuff. And then I realize what was happening here in this last section is like, you have the Sabbath blessing that he gives Israel. You guys get a weekend. Your pagan friends don't, right? So be Jewish. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm signing up for that. You get, you get a weekend where they don't get a weekend. You also have to worship me. How are these connected? Oh my goodness, it, like, it, it just came. It's like, if you are loving your neighbors as yourself, what's in it for me, what's in it for you is you have a right relationship with God. He gives you rest when you come to the worship service, when you choose to worship God. When you go online and say, hey, I could be watching Netflix right now. There's some really cool movies I'd like to be watching. Stranger Things Part 4 came out today, right? Like, oh, I could be watching that instead. A much higher production value than what Pastor Nathan's going to bring. There's almost no production value. Thank you, Drayton. You're doing a great job. But <laughs> that's it. We got Drayton. They've got like 8,000 people working on their production company, right? But what happens is if you have a right relationship with God by loving others as you love themselves, when you come to worship, you actually experience rest, that Sabbath rest he's talked about. If you come to church right now and you're like, well, wait a minute, you know, like, I don't feel rest after I've worshiped God. I'm like, man, I wasted half my Sunday, maybe more. Who knows? How long will this pastor go? Right? Like, if you're not experiencing that rest, maybe God is telling you there's something unjust. There's something you're not doing to your neighbor. There's something you're doing against your neighbor. Because I think that's why he, he gave us this book of the law, this, this book of the covenant, and he laid it out this way. Because he said, look, if you are loving your neighbor as yourself and you're doing all of these things, or you repent when you mess up, then when you come to worship me, you will experience rest. Doesn't our culture need rest right now? Drayton, go ahead and put up this, this uh, list here. Alright, so these were, these were the ones that I, I summarized for us. Worship only God simply. Actually, I want you to look through this. No raising hands. Don't put up fingers for the number. Which one of these, let's just focus on one. We can't do everything all at once. Which one of these do you struggle with the most? Worship only God simply. People are not property. Remember, that deals with employees. That deals with pornography. Human life matters. And that it's not just pro-life in the womb. It is pro-life throughout everything. I don't care about their lives. That's an issue within our, our Christian community. Respect other people's property. Family should be involved in marriage. Some sins utterly destroy the soul. Protect the vulnerable. Right? Everyone's made in God's image. So if you have an idea in your mind like, oh, those people. Right? If you've ever said that, oh, those people. Right? Dismissively, that's a problem. 
those are vulnerable people. We need to protect them and, and treat them with dignity because they're made in the image of God. Do not work against justice. And maybe it could be in a court of law or maybe it could just be in your neighborhood homeowners association. But in the quiet of your own mind, identify which one of these do I struggle with the most. And if Christ has given you uh, just ability to overcome it, praise God. And if He hasn't, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and you need to make amends if you can. And you need to ask forgiveness from the people that you've wronged if they're still around. Like we absolutely have to do that because here's the really terrifying thing. Drayton, go ahead and put up uh, Revelation here. Of course, we're going to scare you with Revelation. Revelation 3.19 says, as many as I, this is Jesus talking, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The discipline continues until there's repentance. So if there's something that the, the Spirit's convicting you on or it's gotten you angry within this text, within the sermon, and you're like, you know, like man, just, just repent. Just repent and then you can have rest. Because here's the beauty. Uh, in 1 John 1, 9, go ahead and put this one up here, Drayton. God also says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you come to church and you're like, man, church, church, I just feel so angry when I leave. Or, or church, I, I just feel so exhausted. Like, like it's, just, it's just one more thing. Guys, church shouldn't be one more thing. I've said this a number of times. Church is actually one last thing. When we come and we rest in Christ, it's one less thing. He takes our burden. He takes our care. Yeah, I know it's a big sacrifice. You sacrificed half your day to be here. But when we gather and we worship he gives us rest. And if you find you don't have rest when you're at church, maybe as the book of the covenant told Moses and his people thousands of years ago, maybe you're mistreating your fellow people and God is trying to convict you, you need to make it right. You need to repent. And then that rest that I've promised all of my people, I will give you. Why should we love our neighbors as ourselves? What's in it for me? When we love our neighbors as ourselves, we find rest when we worship God. If you are exhausted, love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, these words from thousands of years ago still pierce our hearts and our minds and our souls. I pray that you will Convict us where we need to be convicted. You will encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But I pray, Father, for this gathered congregation this morning that You help us to love others as we love ourselves in all of these ways that You've enumerated here. If there is sin that we need to repent of, help us to repent. If we are feeling restless right now, frustrated or angry, Father, that is not from You. The Lord Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. I pray for us as a congregation that in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this frustrating time, in the midst of this age of just absolute, complete rage, that as we come to worship, you will give us rest. Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us with the peace that comes and passes all understanding. Give us your comfort that is not the way the world gives it, but that comes from having a right relationship with you. 
We repent of our sins. We stand upon the promise of Jesus that He is faithful and just and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. We stand forgiven when we repent. Give us your rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.